Well, we are into week two of Exodus. If you missed last week, as you saw on the screen, you can subscribe. Last week, I did a lot of the background in history. Some of you left here. I heard one person left and they're like, I was so enthralled by the history that I had to download uh, podcasts about just the history of ancient Egypt. And I was like, oh, that's excellent. So please check out other weeks because uh, part of what we do here at Church of the City is in teaching through books of the Bible, what you see is that each kind of chapter builds upon what happened in the chapter before. So if you're going to get lost a little bit, this is one of those ways that you don't necessarily have to get lost. If you need a Bible this morning, please raise your hand. We have our ushers would love to bring you one because we're going to be going right through the Exodus text. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to Exodus chapters 1 and 2. This is going to be where we're going to be spending our time uh, for this morning as we continue looking at this book and as we really begin starting it all off. Let me just say one more word of prayer. You know, it's really, really key when we study the Bible or when we're being taught the scriptures that we pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would pray that we would have receptive hearts. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I come in here on a Sunday morning, and even though I'm the one that's, that's teaching, I sometimes come in with distractions or something has happened or I'm, you know, in a little bit of a panic or I'm feeling a little bit anxious about something. And what that can do is it can distract me from actually listening and desiring to understand. So let's just pray that God would teach us a little bit this morning about what's going on in his word and what he would have us to know as that will then change the way that we act. Let's pray. Father God, we know that you are up to something in this world. God, as we prayed earlier, it's hard to always know what that is that you're doing. But God, we want to stand in the place of before our world and before you and pray, Lord, that you would show your face. God, in suffering, Lord, in many ways points to you because we ask the question of why. And so, Lord, you are there to listen to us. Pray, God, that these things would not push us away, but would draw us ever closer to a God that loves, who cares, and is often up to something, even when we don't see it with our own eyes. Thanks, God, for what you're doing. May we be faithful in all things. And all God's people said, amen. Well, let's start. Exodus 1, verse 1. What I'm going to do this morning is we're going to kind of go a little bit line by line, and then at the end I'm going to go and say, hey, so this is what I think we need to learn from this text. So let's start. Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. We have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. What is Moses, the author of the book, trying to tell us? Well, as we study, we read that Moses is likely writing the book of Exodus during the second part of Exodus in the storyline that we're told that they're in the wilderness. And if you study the Old Testament very much, you're going to see a lot of lists of names. Uh, Genealogies seem to be really, really important and valuable. In our culture now, you know, you rarely, rarely do people ever talk about my great-great-grandfather. Right? I don't even know what his name was, to be honest with you. An ancient Israelite, they would know their lineage. They would know their history. It was so important for them to know where they came from. There was a, a certain um, love and respect, and uh, people were proud of the lineage in which they had. And so what Moses is doing in writing here is he's saying to the current Israelites, 400 years later, this is where we came from. This is who we are. It's also telling us at the beginning of this book that Israel at the time was a group of 70 people, a small group. 
in the land of Goshen, in Egypt. This was a small group of people, which then leads us into verse 7. But all the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The time of space between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus is 400 years. And what verse 7 is telling us is that the Israelites increased greatly. One ancient author actually said that at the time, the Egyptian women were having somewhere between three or four children every time they had kids. This is a, an opportunity or an experience here in Exodus where we're being told there is, a, there is an opportunity here where God is living inside of his people, that he is increasing them, that he's trying to make them a strong nation. And we're told that they grow exceedingly, not from a group of 70, that this group is growing into a nation of thousands. Verse 8, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I don't know about you, and I asked the question last week. I, I don't know about you, but I've oftentimes picked up Exodus and I've gone, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, Joseph was pretty powerful at the end of Genesis. How do they not know him now? And what we realized and discovered last week is that a new group of people are in control in Egypt at this time, that a, that a change in power happened in that 400 years. Here's a quote from D- Douglas Stewart in his uh, commentary on the book of Exodus about what's going on in the the, the the perspective that the, uh, uh, that the Egyptians have on the Israelites at this point. The Israelites were now foreigners in a country whose government hated foreigners. Under a pharaoh who was surely determined to prevent what he saw as the miseries of the past from returning, and who would have had not the slightest sense of loyalty to any agreements his Hyksos predecessors worked out with Joseph. So what's going on in this current environment is that the Pharaoh has said, well, in the past we had foreign rule. We don't want that to happen anymore. And I don't care about any sort of agreement that was made between this foreign rule and with Joseph. That's over. That's kaput. I'm now in charge. And these Israelites, they're not going to have the same power or they're not going to have the same level of influence that they once had because we don't want to go back to where the way that it was before. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from our land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store, store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But they were, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them to be slaves. So how does Pharaoh respond to this growth? Let's enslave them. So let's remove them from having any sort of their own political strength. This is, this is more than just, okay, guys, you're my slaves. He's reorganizing the way that they do life. You cannot control your own fate or destiny. I am more powerful, and so I'm going to do with you what I want. Have a map here. And we're told in this story that they are attributed the the building of Pithom and Ramses. Here is Pithom. You can see here. And then Ramses is over here. As we study history, we learn that these were actually military store cities or storehouses. And so Israel is attributed to building these. Now, let's think about this for a second, because enslaving a people... 
is not, is not just, a, it's a terrible thing, obviously, but there's also some strategy behind it, enslaving people. If you enslave a people in this culture, it's not like in, in our day and age where, okay, the Israelites are going to go to work, you know, they'll go in at eight, they'll come home at five. Many times, if they are building cities for Pharaoh, the men of these homes are needing to leave their homes to go and do the labor. So what Pharaoh is doing is saying, this is really kind of strategic because I'm going to limit the influence that they have in their homes. If I take them away from their houses, they're not going to be able to sleep with their wives and therefore they're not going to be able to have more children. I'll remove their influence. They're also not going to be able to work on their own land to develop their own food. So maybe I'll even cause famine in some of their, cult- in some of their houses. For him, this is, this is a win-win. I can get them to be quiet, not only by enslaving them and getting to do everything I want, but removing any sort of health in their home and in their own Israelite culture. But what's super, super interesting is that surprisingly, the oppression and the population grow together. Right? You notice what it says there. It says, but as they were more oppressed, the more they grew. Which is Moses telling us and God showing the people that he has a plan for his people. God is not mentioned and it would seem like he wasn't around at all. And if he doesn't show up, things would, won't get any better. But within these verses, we have the repetition of this word that's for work. And it's the Hebrew word for is abad. What it means is to work, to, to worship even at times. And so what this text is presenting for us is that these Israelite people are desperate for something to happen. They're enslaved. They are broken. Yet God continues to increase. Now, I want to stop here and I want to make some application because it would be easy for us to kind of look back and say, wow, that's a terrible situation. Political and economic slavery. Let's look at our world today. Modern day slavery. There's an estimated 35.8 million people held in slavery today, according to a 2014 global, global slavery index. Children represent an estimated 26% of all forced labor victims. India has the largest estimated number of people in slavery between 3.3 and 14.7 million. Political slavery. Economic slavery, nearly half of the world's population, 2.8 billion people, survive on less than $2 a day. About 20% of the world's population, 1.2 billion people, live on less than $1 a day. And nearly one people are in the world are illiterate, and 1 billion do not have safe water. There is enslavement in our culture. And you might be saying, well, I don't know what I really have to do with that. Let's look at one industry in which our culture has enslaved a portion of the world. Clothing. 97% of our clothing is made overseas, and there are roughly 40 million garment workers in the world today, many of whom do not share the same rights or protections that many people in the West do. 85% of all garment workers are women. Global fashion brands make $3 trillion a year, many of whom profit from the use of cheap labor in foreign countries. On the 24th of April, 2013, 1,134 people were killed and over 2,500 were injured when the Rana Plaza complex collapsed in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Brands that were found in this place were The Children's Place and Joe Fresh. When people want power, they enslave. Pharaoh wanted his power, 
so he needed to enslave. We live in the West. Who can we use to drive up our own profits? Now, how does this clothing issue survive? Well, it's because we're avoiding the question of who made my clothes. Who made my clothes? This is one example amongst many examples that we could look at of how the West enslaves. But I could go and talk about other things too, the ways that we in the West enslave other nations for our own good and for our own glory. But how about the enslavement that some of us feel to our own stuff, our own things, right? We can talk about the way that our culture enslaves, but also how are we enslaved? What are you enslaved to? What is something that you feel like you just cannot live without? Because this text drives us to ask that question. Slavery, modern day, self-slavery. Let's go on. Because obviously Pharaoh's plan is not working. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shifra and the other Puah, I think it would say puah, but you never know. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives, notice what he tells us. But the midwives fear God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Why did they do this? They feared God. They, they put God as a higher priority in their lives than they did the physical taskmasters that were over them and even Pharaoh. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They do it quick. We can't catch them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Notice what happens. As oppression increases, God's blessing increases. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Okay, so this just escalated. First, Pharaoh says, let's get the Israelites to kill the Israelites. You midwives. Notice how names are mentioned. This would have been enormous in that culture of a person reading back to say, look, at these two people were mentioned. They're to be celebrated for what they did in honoring God and not honoring Pharaoh in this instance. Let's get the Israelites to kill the Israelites. Nope, sorry, they're too vigorous. Well, let's take matters into our own hands. Let's have Egyptians kill Israelites. Let's have infanticide. Now, what's this decision of casting into the Nile? Well, number one, why the Nile? One, it's convenient, and it would be a clean way of killing infants. Two, it shifted some blame to the Nile, as Egyptians saw the Nile as a god. And if the Nile is to receive the infant, it would represent some of its judgment on the children. The Nile was viewed both as a giver and taker of life. And in all likelihood, Pharaoh is announcing this in a, in a very much of a way that's saying, listen, if you cast these babies into the Nile, you're doing the will of the gods. It is your right to do it. So in this text, we've already in chapter 1 seen political slavery, economic slavery, and in this part of the text, we see social slavery. And social slavery is that people are not accepted as fully human by wider society. The Israelites are seen as they're not fully human. They're not as valuable as the rest of us. 
Let's look at our own culture as we apply this. Worldwide, there are nearly 2 million children in the commercial sex trade. Sex trafficking drives significant profits per perpetrators, a subset of 32 billion market value of illicit human trafficking. How about sexual violence, where we uh, limit oftentimes and devalue women. An estimated 1.1 in 5 women will be a victim of a rape or attempted rape in her lifetime. In many developing countries, basic daily activities, taking public transportation, using a community latrine, collecting water, can put girls and women at particular risk of sexual assault. For many poor girls, school is the most common place where sexual violence occurs, and sexual, and sexual violence or feared sexual violence is a common reason girls don't even go to school, according to the World Health Organization. We devalue. They're not as valuable as the rest of us. How, but look at, look, guys, we can't avoid Pornography is degrading to women and to men. It causes a viewer to think less towards individuals and specifically women. In a study of 854 women in prostitution across nine countries, 49% said that porn had been made of them while they were in prostitution. And 47% said that they had been harmed by men who had either forced or tried to force their victims to do things the men had seen in pornography. According to... A study, in the end, porn fuels prostitution, and porn and prostitution are the products of the sex trade which exists to deliver. Because of social slavery, we, we devalue. We could go into the conversation that's happening across the West about race, where people literally think less of people that don't look the same as them, don't have the same color of skin as them. We could then talk about abortion, the devaluing of human life. There's a big debate and argument and protest going on in our city right now on this very topic and subject. When we diminish and devalue, it's social slavery. So chapter one of Exodus, pretty bleak. And this is the intention and this is the purpose of what we're to be seeing, is that there is a great need in Egypt. Let's go on. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. This is Moses' way of saying, listen, later on in the story, only people born of the Levitical lineage can actually enter the presence of God. So God is already setting up Moses as a person that can serve in this capacity. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for, for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Interesting selection of word that the same word here used for basket is also the same word that Moses uses for ark in the book of Genesis. So a vessel that saved... Here is also a vessel that will save. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the wreaths and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. Um, she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughters said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, 
and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is incredible. <laughs> like, you got to read this part of the story and go, wow, that's, that was not only, there's a coincidence. How did that happen? This is God beginning to show that what is going on in chapter one does not need to be the end of the story. The connections, as we're going to see a little bit later in the message, between Moses and Jesus are incredible. Moses is saved in a time when all the male children are being killed. Jesus is saved and rescued at a time when all the male children are being killed. The connections are incredible. And so Moses' mom acts in an obedient way, hides him for three months. If you've had children before, you know that three months, at the end of three months, is kind of when they stop doing their, like, sleeping all the time thing. <laughs> it's probably getting a little loud and noisy. Okay, we've got to do something with this baby. Puts it in the river. Pharaoh's daughter finds. Uh, Pharaoh opens up the, the basket. Oh, what do you know? It's a Hebrew child. At this time, there would have been enough physical differences between a Hebrew and an Egyptian for her to know that. Moses' sister, Miriam, who we're going to find out later in the story, is there. Hey, I just so happen to know a woman that can nurse this baby for you. Perfect. And probably at about the age of three or four, Moses is then transferred into the care of the Egyptians. Verse 11. This is now jumping forward about 37 years. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Now, this is where you really have to put the prince of Egypt and Exodus, gods and kings, out of your mind. Because they play up the story that Moses is really, really, he has a great allegiance to the Egyptians, right? Like, they're tight, they're racing around on their chariots, like all up the pyramids. This text is saying here, look at it, it says, And looked, one day when Moses was growing up, he went out to his people. Moses identifies as a Hebrew that just so happens to be raised in the home of an Egyptian. It's not like, whoa, look at those different people over there. No, he is used to their culture. He knows this people, and he knows he's one of them. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He kills him. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the well. Moses thought he'd gotten away with it, and he also probably thought he was in the right by doing something. Right? Like, think about it. An Egyptian is hurting a Hebrew. I'll kill the Egyptian. Now the Hebrews will like me because I'm standing up for them. But what happens in the next verses to his shock? Hebrews are mocking the decision that he made. He tries to take things into his own hands rather than allowing God to use him in the way that God wants to instruct him. He says, I will kill the Egyptian. And it ends up not working for his benefit. And we read that he then needs to flee because Pharaoh, unlike the Prince of Egypt story where you're like, or the Exodus gods and kings where it's like, how could Pharaoh, like Moses is just one of like Pharaoh's two kids. Like how could he honestly be that mad at Moses? I mean, it's one slave driver. Pharaoh likely had dozens of children, people. 
He wasn't committed to one woman with all their kids. There was multiple women in the situation. So Pharaoh could care less about this Hebrew that could potentially gain power, who knows, and I'm just going to get rid of him if he thinks that he can have any sort of um, allegiance to his own people, but also yet be an Egyptian. I will kill him. And so Moses flees to Midian. Now I have a map here. There's just a, a picture of Moses doing his thing. This is lower Egypt up in the left. Upper Egypt would have been a bit lower than that. Midian is over here on the right. So you see the Gulf of Suez down to the Red Sea, and then Midian is up here, right, just north of it. Moses has the option. He needs to get far enough away that he's out of Egypt's kind of territory. So he goes to Midian. As we know in the scriptures, the Midianites were actually descendants of one of Abraham's wives. So he needs to go to a people that in many, many, some, in many ways need to kind of look like him and potentially could even speak the similar language that he speaks. So he goes to Midian, and we read he sits down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and, came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. So obviously Moses still has enough Egyptian look about them that he's, identif- that he's being identified as an Egyptian. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was, not, was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Again, this story is going quickly, right? In one verse, he's dwelling, now he's marrying one of them. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. The thing you need to notice about this section of the verses is the type of person Moses is. Moses is not the sort of individual that will stand aside when he sees injustice and not do anything about it. He's a man that when he sees injustice, wants to step in the way and to protect people. His actions are rewarded, and he's invited into this family. And then we read later, we're going to know that he's going to then spend 40 years in Midian. I, heard, I read one commentator who said for Moses' life of ministry, he needed 40 years in Egypt where he tried to learn something. He then needed 40 years of unlearning something so that for then 40 years in the wilderness, he could realize that he needed to learn everything from God to actually do something. Two years of training for every one year of ministry. Interesting, eh? Let's jump ahead because then this is this connecting few verses between what has happened and where we're going. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. These are verses, they're summary statements. These verses return our attention to Egypt where the Israelites continue to be crushed in slavery, setting up God acting and delivering his people. What happens in these verses? The Pharaoh who sought Moses' life has died. Two, the change in government produced no relief for the Israelites. So just because the Pharaoh's changed doesn't mean the Israelites are no longer in slavery. They continue to be enslaved. They're groaning. They're crying out. The people of Israel begin to pray. They cried out. Their cry went up to God. God remembers his covenant. His covenant appears 25 times in Genesis. This is the first usage in Exodus. God decides to honor the terms of the covenant at this time. And God is interested in his people and in the process of making himself known to them. All right. So (laughs) what do we do with this, right? What do we do with chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus? Let's apply a little bit of this. 
What I believe these chapters are setting up for us right at the beginning of this very, very important book is number one, the need for freedom. We see this all through chapter one, that there is a need for freedom. There is an understandable need for redemption. The Israelites are not partying and living out uh, what it means to be an Israelite at the time. The Israelites are enslaved under a burden by another people. This is after, as we saw in the video, when God's people, they were promised to be growing into a nation that were going to be not only a blessing, but they were going to bless other nations. And here they are feeling like, how are we a blessing? We're blessing Egypt by being enslaved by them. Do you ever feel like you are in the middle of a silent God? And we talked about this in the summer with Esther. I have to imagine the Israelites are feeling like we had this promise from God, but now God is nowhere to be seen. He doesn't listen. He doesn't care. It's been 400 years since Joseph died. We were really at the top there, but look at us now. We can't spend time with our family. We're caught up in famine in our own own, uh, homes. Who is this God? Does he even care about us? Moses wants us to understand that things are really, really bleak. That there is a need for freedom. Secondly, he wants to introduce us to the mediator and his plan for freedom. We read these verses in Hebrews 11, which comes later in the New Testament, looking back on Moses. It says this, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated by the, with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the danger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invincible. Moses pursued the promises of God over what he saw in the current situation as where he could maybe have some sort of, well, I don't know, comfort. So here's the, the, the application then. If you're living in this environment where it feels like things are bleak, are you still choosing to put your faith and trust in God? Because Moses does. Right? He aligns himself. He identifies with his people. So we're introduced to the mediator and to freedom. And then finally, we get God's motive for freedom. First, he, God hears and he takes notice. Deuteronomy 26, verse 7 is going to refer back and say, Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. God responds when his people call out to him. Secondly, God remembers his covenant. I have a few verses on the screen here for us. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God and a faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. A thousand generations. This is how good this God is. Psalm 98, verse 3. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. And in Nehemiah 9, verse 17b, and then 32a, you are a God ready to forgive, 
gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. This is the God we're being introduced to in Exodus. And many of us, if we're honest, we don't have this view of God. You see, it was at the Enlightenment that people started to believe that they could judge on God rather than allowing God to be God. People started to ask the question, well, God can't do that. Why can't God do that? We need to trust. This is the God we're being introduced to. He is steadfast, that he is gracious, that he is with you in the midst of the suffering that we experience in the, on this planet, in this broken world, that God is still continues to be a faithful, steadfast, loving, merciful God. And we as Christians then understand the fulfillment of this in the good news of Jesus, which is the gospel. The gospel exposes our need for freedom. It exposes the mediator and freedom And the gospel also exposes God's motive for that freedom and that redemption. In Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, we we get this, that we are dead in our trespasses and our sins. This says, but God, being rich in mercy in which he loved us, sent Christ to stand in that place for us so that we could walk away free. There's a need for redemption. There's a need for freedom in our world. Did you, do you see that? Do you see that there is, there is this world that we, that we are surrounded by and people are enslaved to things? Sometimes we get enslaved to things. What we need to see here is that our world is desperate. There is a need in our world. And if you don't see the need, you need to open up your eyes. I know some people and they're like, I just don't watch the news because I don't want to get depressed. Okay, I get that. But then you're also walking into a position of negligence when you know there's stuff going on. Last night, uh, some of you now probably know this by this point, but I'm a movie guy. And I'm watching The Blind Side last night. And some of you know the story of this woman that invites a guy by the name of Michael Orr into her home because he has a really, really tough upbringing. Why, why does she, she cares for one person and that makes the world of difference in this person's life. There's a need for freedom. Who are the people in your world that need to have this sort of invitation for you to invite into your life that they can partake not only in fellowship with you, but also eventually fellowship with God? There is a need. Because of what Jesus has done, we realize then we don't just identify the need, we also figure out the solution, and that is Jesus. You see, what Exodus 1 and 2 also exposes for us is that there is a political slavery, there's an economic slavery, there's a social slavery, but there's also a spiritual slavery. That people are enslaved to Egypt, and God wants worshipers. And so what Exodus is also about is is changing where we uh, have our allegiance or where we're stewarding our time and our energies, either towards ourselves and the world around us or towards God. You know, it's maybe been asked of you before, but if you were to have an agenda in front of you that has everything kind of listed out in your, in your, in your daily lives, where would somebody else, if they were to read your agenda, where would they say you place the priority of your attention, focus, and, and ultimate worship? What are you enslaved by? 
Because Exodus invites us in and says, listen, your enslavement exposes a need for freedom, but then you're also not left alone in that need because there's a mediator provided. Why? Because God loves you. The world needs to know that God loves them. That God loves you. And so one of the greatest reasons that you and I have to be thankful today is that we know the good news of Jesus. I guarantee you there are Christians in Haiti right now singing about how much they love God. I guarantee you there are people from Florida right now, a million people that have said, I got to flee from my house because of the hurricane. And they're somewhere in local churches praising God. Friends, we are sitting in a school... (laughs) There's no hurricane coming at us right now. So not only, we, we're, we're not enslaved to the, the physical brokenness of the world. We're free to sit here and to, for us to be actually able to read the scriptures, to be exposed. And we know what God has done for us in Christ. And you either say that's a great thing to be thankful for or it's kind of a mediocre thing to be thankful for. Does your life project to the world around you that you have a great reason to be thankful because of the good news of Jesus and what he's done for you in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Exodus. I thank you, God, that you've called us, that we have reason to be thankful. I pray, God, that as we sit and as we reflect, as we reflect on the brokenness of our world, God, that we serve a God that is above this brokenness, that has promised complete freedom and redemption in his son. I pray, God, that we would hold on to you, that we would cling to you and not to the things of this world, God, that that offer a temporary freedom. And God, I pray that we would be a people that are so radically changed by this good news that it actually changes the way that we live. And then as people look in at our lives, God, that they would see that we are different. God, I pray that if there's anybody sitting here today and they're kind of overwhelmed God, because they don't maybe trust you with everything. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a relationship. May they cling to you. May they truly believe, God, that you are enough. And may they lift you up to the place that you are, that you are sitting in, that you are worthy of. God, may we not diminish you. I pray that as we sing this song, that we would declare it as a people who believe it. You are the Lion of Judah. You're reclaiming your lost people. God, as you responded to the cries of the Israelites, may we cry out to you and may we we see you respond. We love you. We need you. Don't let us walk away today, God, without recognizing our great need and how you have filled that need for us out of your love and your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.